Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is episode 17 of The Bowery Boys. The New York Public Library. Lend us your ears. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of the Bowery Boys. We are discussing the New York Public Library today. Before we jump into the stacks, so to speak. <laughs> because we are ready. <laughs> We've kind of stacked right in front of us. I want to take a moment actually to mention our sponsor, Eurocheapo. Um, as our show is getting a little bigger, it actually costs more to produce. And our sponsor really helps defray the cost. Eurocheapo.com is a travel site for booking hotels in Europe. Not like the big Hilton hotels, but these independent, off-the-beaten-path kind of hotels. The ones that actually give you a better sense of the places that you're visiting. The reason that they actually sponsor us is because they now also do hotels in New York in the same kind of quaint, out-of-the-way places. Uh, the staff at Europe Cheapo visit and review each hotel. If you're coming here to visit, please visit the website and see if they have anything you like. And even if you're not, just if you want to fantasize about a big trip in your future, visit the site. That's eurocheapo.com. And now up to our podcast, Tom. Today's subject is the New York Public Library. Mm -hmm. I think that most of us know this building with the two lions out front, a couple million volumes inside, and a great backstory. Oh, yes. And you're about to hear a little bit of that. It involves a gift similar to our Statue of Liberty one last week, even though it was a gift from France to the U.S. This also involves a gift, a little bit different kind of a present. So stay tuned. and And if... And stick around because at the end of the podcast, we have a couple interesting and fun facts, including what the New York Public Library has to do with Ripley's Believe It or Not. Believe it or not, stay tuned. Okay, Greg, before we actually get too involved in the backstory, mm-hmm. let's just talk about the New York Public Library that we know today. Yes. The, let's talk about the building, yes, right? Yes. Because that's sort of the focus of today's we'll, podcast. We'll, we'll be talking a little bit about the sort of like the New York Public Library system and the branches a little bit. But, but today we're specifically talking about this historical piece of architecture. So we're not going to get like 
sort of stuck up in the um, minutia of the system <laughs> of borrowing and circulation. The Dewey Decimal System and how it relates to 1940s Manhattan. No, nothing like that. Yeah, we'll just be talking about the building. The with, building. Yeah, touching okay. on the branches. So yes. the building, just mm-hmm. to situate the listener, is between 40th and 42nd Street mm-hmm. on 5th Avenue, actually spanning between 5th Avenue and into the park behind it, Bryant Park, mm-hmm. which is between 5th and 6th. So mm-hmm. obviously the library doesn't take up that entire block because it doesn't go all the way to 6th Avenue. Correct. But it's a pretty big f- it's a very imposing big building, building. Yes. Nonetheless, you walk up the grand staircase past the lions mm-hmm. in through the door past security. You're yeah. in a big <laughs> foyer. You've got big staircases going up on either side of you. You can continue in upstairs and everybody wants to go to the Rose Reading Room. It is a giant place. Um, it's it, The reading room is actually built on top of seven floors of book stacks on Underneath, yeah, the, like most that. of those are underneath. You don't really are walking up seven floors or anything like that. But and that and that room is big. There mm-hmm. are big chandeliers hanging, giant windows looking back out onto the park. The the room is nearly three hundred feet long with fifty two foot high ceilings. We're hmm. talking about it lined with thousands of reference books. It's a gorgeous place. There used to be in that very spot. Not a library, of course. What was before the library was the Croton Reservoir. Mm-hmm. Now, what's that? You want? Wait, let's say reservoir. It's actually this was a gigantic receptacle of water from what was called at the time the Croton Aqueduct. It brought water in to the city in the 19th century from Croton River up in Westchester County. This reservoir, though, it was like a built like a castle. It was a huge, like Egyptian style, very imposing structure. You know, before this was. Around though, New Yorkers got water from wells and it would be diseased and polluted and whatever. So this did bring healthy, fresh water to people who lived in Manhattan at the time. Was this water free? Was it being provided by the city as a service? Yes, it was a, it was city run and you know, people came here to get water, but it was also from there distributed to other places. You know, some of the actual foundation of the Croton Reservoir you can still find in the library on the south side, believe it or not. A new aqueduct was created in like 1890s, and actually we still use that particular aqueduct today for our water. Did you know that? Well, I have been reading, yeah. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. this is an ongoing story <laughs> that they're trying to replace many of these uh, pipes because it's so old. Well, the well at the time it was brand new. They ripped out the old aqueduct, and they had no longer use for this reservoir, so it was demolished in 1899. Now, while that was there... Right next to it was something a little bit more curious where Bryant Park is today. There was a World's Fair there in 1853 called the Exhibition of the Industry of All Nations. And so what they built is a really must have been quite spectacular structure called the New York Crystal Palace. A very glamorous, glamorous yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a glamorous warehouse essentially. Uh, it had like a one hundred foot dome of glass. Um, the whole building was mm. iron and glass. It sounds amazing though. Actually, it was a copy of a building that was in London from a World's Fair a couple years prior, but. Still a, a beautiful thing to have right there, but kind of strange next to a, res- a reservoir. Um, and how long was that around? Well, like everything in New York City, like it was up for like seven years and then poof, totally destroyed in a fire. Like it took like 30 minutes to like to destroy the whole thing. I read an article, I read the actual original New York Times article on this and it was a, no one died in it, but it was a list of hundreds of different like newfangled technologies and inventions that wow. had been stored there and were housed there for exhibition. But wow. the, the ruins of this, whatever, have were scraped away or uh, whatever. In 1884, Bryant, they actually made Bryant Park and it's been that way ever since. It was named after a poet. 
named William Colin Bryant. Some of you may know him from literature class. So anyway, that's the situation at that space. So at the end of the 19th century, we have the newly formed Bryant Park, sort of on the 6th Avenue side, and we have a reservoir on the 5th Avenue side that's about to get demolished. Correct, because we don't need it anymore. So what ha- what's happening in the rest of the city? Why is, was a library put there? Well, up until this particular point, like neighborhoods had individual, like privately owned libraries. As a as a matter of fact, there was this, uh, a small group called the New York Free Circulating Library that had started in 1878. It was privately funded, and it was actually seen not as like a mun- municipal service that libraries are today, but seen more as a charity. Mm. From one book that I actually read, it actually said it was started by a group of philanthropic ladies who wanted to supply wholesome books to the poor little girls in a church sewing class. So that was the kind of philosophy behind this particular group. Well, and of course, in the late 19th century in New York, there were all kinds of reform movements where Mm -hmm. people were finally becoming more aware of the desperate sorry plight of many of the city's newly landed immigrants and we're starting to supply parks uh, Mm -hmm. public services better water like we said and now some reading well and with the all these immigrants coming in like you know they speak all different languages a library might be the only place they go where they find something in their own language to read so there were actually two two bigger libraries in the city at that time these weren't libraries that you go in to like read a magazine these were a little bit more scholarly libraries one of them was the Astor Library, where it's in the same spot as the as the uh, public theater is today, right. down in uh, Astor Place. John Jacob Astor, who's a 19th century millionaire, he bequeathed a lot of money for the starting of this library when he died in 1848. So the Astor Library was it was a, it, you couldn't check books out of it, and it, but it did have a very huge collection. This the other library that I was talking about. It was called the Lennox Library. It was started by a man named James Lennox. He was a very rich art and book collector. And he built this fireproof library of limestone um, on, the up, on the Upper East Side. Fifth Avenue and 70th was where the Lennox Library was. And we should keep that location in mind. It might be popping up later. It might be, yes. Uh, it had a collection of just rare, unusual books. But this was literally for bibliophiles, for colleges, for scholars. This was not for just the normal Joe to walk in. So New York did didn't really ha- it was all these different disparate things they needed so to be pulled time, together. So at this time there were really the Astor Library, the Lennox Library and then a couple s- smaller circulating libraries. Yes. So it needed so- a sort of a voice to pull everything together and that's where the gift comes in that I, w- I was telling you about. And and a man by the name Tom of Samuel Tilton, Tilden, Tilden, not to Tilton. Tilden. <laughs> I keep wanting to say Tilton like Charlene Tilton from Dallas, but it's it's Samuel Tilden. Right, a former New York governor. Yes. A really interesting man, actually. His whole life story, he was a prosecutor of the whole Tammany Hall, Boss Tweed, you know, destroying the corruption. He almost was president of the United States, actually, right. but he had an Al Gore situation. He was a Democrat, and he won the popular vote in 1876 against Rutherford B. Hayes, but lost by one electoral vote through process corruption depending on where you pull your information from but anyway he was a lover of new york and he was a lover of rare books he made an extraordinary gesture in his will when he died in 1886 to bequeath four million dollars to the creation of a public library he, he put this in the what was called the tilden trust in the decades before the civil war slavery's grip on america tightened But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. 
hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Now, the heirs of his family didn't really understand... Well, that was a lot of money, and you can imagine being in the family not necessarily wanting to give that part of your fortune away to (laughs) to what? A circulating (laughs) library. I mean, this didn't exist in New York. Yes, it existed in Boston... Yes, Boston. Well, a lot of many, many, many cities had one. We New York just didn't have New one. New York but. just was slow to the table on this one. So yeah. uh, eventually, it was boiled down to two point two million. But that wasn't that was enough to make a public library, and it just needed a person to take that trust and to tie all these other little libraries together. That came in the form of a man named John Bigelow. He concocted a plan to use this Tilden Trust, but to combine it with the actual pre-existing collections of the Astor Library downtown and the Lennox Library uptown. So they actually made an agreement, and sort of the birth of the New York Public Library is on May 23, 1895. And if you actually go to the Public Library and look at the very top... Um, what do you see up there? Well, you see the three, You see their three names. You see the Astor Collection, you see Lennox, and then you see Tilden. So they're the three godfathers of the New York Public Library. So it wasn't long before others would get the sort of library spirit and hop on the bandwagon. Most notably, of course, Andrew Carnegie, who had amassed an enormous Mm -hmm. fortune and had also decided to give it all away before he died. (laughs) And he was giving lots and lots of money to libraries, not only in New York, but all over the country. Mm -hmm. So he gave the project $5.5 million dollars to build branch libraries wow. so that people could be served in the other boroughs. We should add, of course, that the New York Public Library mm-hmm. serves the Bronx and Staten Island. Mm-hmm. Brooklyn is served by the Brooklyn Public Library and Queens by the Queensboro yes. Public Library. In addition, remember when the New York Free Circulating Library I talked about earlier? Right. They took their group and they merged it with that group. So now they had the two big libraries and then they had, and now they had all the little smaller libraries. So now they had amassed a huge number of books and they were ready to centralize the collection and as well and combine those branch libraries that Andrew Carnegie was funding. So the first director for the official New York Public Library was chosen. It was a man named John Shaw Billings. And he knew exactly what he wanted in a centralized building for the for the library. As a matter of fact, he went so far as to actually did it, do a sketch on a postcard mm. in pencil of what he wanted the main reading room to look like. And what's amazing is the architects he will have hired actually used that b- basic design in the design of the reading room. So wow. he, in a way, kind of designed it himself. 
Wow. So how did he find these architects? Well, they had a competition. I think they do this frequently in New York back then it. for these yeah. buildings. They have competitions. They Central Park. Yeah. They did it right. So he actually picked some relative unknowns by the name of Carrere and Hastings. John Mervyn Carrere was a Brazilian who met Thomas Hastings, who was a native New Yorker, in Paris. And they met at the, see if you remember this from a past oh, podcast, yes. my friends, the École des Beaux-Arts. Brilliant. Thank you. Yes, now, I think that we last saw the École des Beaux-Arts um, in the Chrysler building, didn't we? In the context. Yeah, the context of the, of the Chrysler building. Right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Beaux-Arts. The New York Public Library is actually one of the top examples of Beaux-Arts architecture in New York, in the United States, as a matter of fact. So break it down for us. So the Cold des Beaux-Arts mm-hmm. <laughs> was a collection of art schools in, in Paris. And most, you know, many significant architects at the time attended these art schools. They, they almost had to. It influenced so much of American architecture in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And the principle of the Beaux-Arts style is that it's looking back? Is that it? Kind of. It's essentially symmetry and frill, I guess one way to look at it. It it melds historical styles together, but in dramatic and... Dramatic fashion, dramatic flourishes, and at the time, kind of modern take of old architectural tropes like Greek and Roman, Renaissance, throw them all together, and then just sort of like puff them up. The point was like fluidity of all these different styles, though, that it didn't look like you were trying to mash things together. It had to look like just sort of a new architectural dialogue, I guess, of creating this modern look out of these old pieces. And this is as opposed to the Art Deco scene, which was much sleeker, more linear. Which would come later as a reaction to it, which was like, let's look like now and let's look like the future as opposed to let's look like the past. Right. Also part of Beaux Arts is that things had to be big, which of course, was very popular with Americans who were building big buildings. Also, you know how they say that when you leave the house, you should take two pieces of jewelry off before you leave? In those arts, you put on seven or eight pieces. <laughs> it was full of, like, one could say almost garish sometimes, like garnishes and um, dramatic architectural flourishes. But still today, I think that most people walking down the street looking up at a Beaux-Arts structure will say, ah, oh, how beautiful. It's because we live in New York and many of the best examples are here. We also have some of the worst examples. A bad example of the Beaux-Arts basically looks like a like an old French prostitute in the shape of a building. It's smoking? Or, or like a melted wedding cake. It just has this like drear, <laughs> a drear overly gaudy, excessively showy look to it. Sorry, I'm stuck on the prostitute. Okay, so anyway, but the, anyway, so it's in Beaux Arts. Yes. The, the style chosen is Beaux Arts. Construction begins in 1902 when the cornerstone yes. is is laid. The project would would grow over time. It, it, the enormity of it yes. basically consumed an enormous budget, nine million dollars. Yes, and it's it's the whole thing took nine years to build. And what I find really kind of interesting is it took like half the time to build the actual outside of the building and then it took an equal amount of time almost four and a half years to build the inside and part of that is yeah is because they actually not only designed the walls and the ceilings they designed the chairs they designed the tables they designed the shelves and if you go into these rooms like the rose reading room everything has a certain kind of like a synchronicity to it i mean yes there's actually of course normal offices in the library somewhere but these main rooms have just a certain beauty that still really works because it was all designed by the same person right people the building was dedicated on may 23rd 1911 mm-hmm. 
16 years to the day after Bigelow consolidated the Astor oh, and the Lennox uh, libraries. And it was dedicated by the president himself at the time, William Howard Taft. Right away. I mean, they saw actually thirty to 50,000 visitors streaming through that giant mm-hmm. building on its first day. Unfortunately, one of those visitors was not one of the architects. Port Carrere had actually, a few weeks before the opening, had been killed in a car collision. However, Hastings Hastings was there. He would actually go on to, to other things like help Manhattan out the Manhattan Bridge, Bridge yeah. and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington. And remember when I t- said the Lennox Library was up on 70th right. and 5th? That was torn down and the mansion of Henry Clay Frick was built there and it was designed by Hastings. And that was later changed into the Frick Collection, which is a, a wow, great private so museum that you can go to now. The story is circulating, you could say. <laughs> Uh, the first book that was ever checked out at the New York Public Library, by the way, which is a very strange book. I'm not going to try to say it in Russian, but it was called Ethical Ideas of Our Time, a study of Frederick Nietzsche and Leo Tolstoy. The slip was introduced at 9.08 a.m. and he got his book six minutes later, they say. And we should also add, I mean, this begs the question, how in the world with one million volumes when it opened, one million, mm-hmm. Today, it has two million in that same building because they've expanded underneath Bryant Park. Oh, right, right. Right. How did they get the book so quickly? I mean, you couldn't even really run through the stacks at that speed. They did it because they instituted that pneumatic suction still And they still have it, which I find kind of incredible. I guess it still works as well as it did then. I, I noted before that this particular library has many different collections in many different rooms. Mm -hmm. So you really should just get a map when you walk in there (laughs) and see all of the different collections available Mm -hmm. to visit. Among them are things like the map division, truly fantastic. Mm -hmm. Have you been to that, Billy? Well, just the the room itself, you you can't even look at any of the maps. The room is so ornate and colorful. Yeah, it's like you're you're in a set. Yeah, really, it is. There's the Asian and Middle East collection, the Slavic and Baltic collection. There's the print division, the rare books division. Uh I mean, these are really great places for research. The photography. Some Uh of these collections actually require special passes. Others you can just access by just walking right in the door. Some of the more famous pieces, I guess, in the collection, some of the most famous books and other items in the collection, Mm. a a lot of these came from James Lennox. There is a copy of the Gutenberg Bible there. Right. That's uh, the Bible that was sort of hot off the very first presses, almost, or pretty much, uh, of Johannes Gutenberg in 15th century. There's a handwritten farewell address by George Washington. Wow. There's a rough draft of the U.S. Constitution from Alexander Hamilton. Mm. And the actual th- the thing that I found kind of most interesting, because I had never even thought of it. I don't know. What, for some reason, it's fascinating me. It's called the Hunt Lennox Globe. It is the second oldest surviving globe in the world. It was made in 1503. It's made of copper. And it has all sorts of unusual continent shapes on it. It was brought over by our friend Robert Morse Hunt. Now I'm, I thought you were going to say Robert Moses. Ro- no, no, no. Robert <laughs> Moses is not going to be in this podcast, Tom. Robert Morse Hunt was our friend who designed the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. Ah, yes. Okay. So he's actually, he's a friend of uh, our friend James Lennox. He brought this over as a gift for Mr. Lennox. And so now here it sits in the library and you can view it on the third floor. 
Speaking of visiting any of the collections, when you walk through the front doors, you have to pass, of course, the two icons of the New York Public Library. The two things Lion, knows. Yeah. yeah, Lion on the left and Lion on the right. <laughs> and we all, we know them. Lions, of course, are popular for libraries, have been for, you know, for ages, ever since, you know, Venice, even. Edward Clark Potter was the sculptor, and he was a sculptor specifically suited for animal sculptures. Right. Did you know that? And the, the lions themselves are made of pink Tennessee marble. Isn't that odd? I find wow. it interesting that they're made of tennis. I just find them, I think they're so exotic, but they're from Tennessee. And he was paid $8,000 for the modeling of it, and the carvers were paid 5000 so... $13,000 for these, you know, two what landmarks. I know. Yeah. Well, well, and they were they would later be named they were initially called mm-hmm. of course Leo Astor and Leo Lennox and named <laughs> Leo Lion, right, uh-huh. obviously. Astor and Lennox in honor of the two collections that formed the library. They would later actually be renamed Patience and Fortitude yes. by Mayor LaGuardia and in the 1930s. Yeah. And that's what they're still named today. Patience and, and fortitude. fortitude. I think that would sum up our listeners. And I, I think they have, uh, well, they have patience because we're finally here for a couple fun facts oh, for the library. Right. Okay, this is a fun fact. Norbert Perlroth, the Ripley's Believe It or Not researcher from mm-hmm. 1923 to 1975. It's a long time. He found all of his information for the newspaper feature using the huge collection in the library's <laughs> main awesome. reading room. I think that a speaker of several languages with a prodigious memory, Mr. Pearlroth, came to the library every day and relied on serendipity to find his amazing facts. And it's estimated that he reviewed 7,000 books a year or 364,000 books <laughs> over his lifetime, over 52 years in the library. Believe it or not. And he wasn't the only one, obviously, of note who researched and found things there. I mean, Edward Land developed the first process for the Polaroid Land camera (laughs) at the library. Chester Carlson researched photoconductivity and electrostatics to invent the Xerox photocopier. The Xerox copier. Was invented, basically was researched and planned in the New York Public Library. And would be used millions and millions of times there as well. Over (laughs) and and over over and over. (laughs) And then, of course, finally, DeWitt Wallace would go there and would read all sorts of articles and things and books and then condense them for a little publication that he would call Reader's Digest. He would digest them there at the New York Public Library and put them in his magazine. Now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> so anyway. We thank you for lending us your ear this evening. <laughs> thank you. And uh, go out and check out a book at your own library if you don't live in New York. But if you are here, uh, go check it out. Go check out your branch libraries because everyone has its own little history because they're all, they're all old and be- many of them are really beautiful buildings. So. And you can also get a New York Public Library card, show a photo ID, get a card, and use the system. All right. Well, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.